Welcome to A Handful of Hope, where we bring you heart-to-heart conversations with heart-centered people. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another edition of A Handful of Hope. I am so happy and grateful to have Jack Canfield with us here today, who is a co-creator of the Chicken Soup for the Soul series. He's developed 42 New York Times bestsellers and holds a Guinness Book of World Records for having seven books on the New York Times bestseller list simultaneously. Known as America's number one success coach, Jack has studied and reported on what makes successful people different. Over the last 40 years, his compelling message, empowering energy, and personable coaching style has helped hundreds of thousands of individuals achieve their dreams. He's been a featured guest in more than a thousand radio and television programs in every major market worldwide. He lives, in, he lives in Santa Barbara, California. Jack, welcome and thank you so much for being here. My pleasure, Jesse. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's reading your bio and saying you've been on over a thousand radio and television shows were why we were just talking beforehand how you've done 40 of podcasts now uh, in just the last few months. It's, it's very indicative of the changing times. I know so much of your business and so much of what you do has been based on live events in the past. How have you been adjusting both personally and professionally to everything that's been going on the last few months? Well, first of all, I was like, you know, oh my God, what are we going to do? We've got a million dollars in deposits for trainings that we had lined up for here in Washington, D.C., in San Diego, and so forth. And like, you know, if we have to give all that back, we don't even, we've spent part of that, as you do. You know, you spend it on the hotel deposits, you spend it on your staff, and so forth. So it was like, uh uh-oh. And so it was like scary. And, you know, after a day or two of that, okay, we said, okay, let's let's get real here. Um, Let's create some online programs. Let's see if we can pivot people into those programs. My sales team was on the phone for over a week with just one-on-one calls with people, you know, sharing the issue that we have and wanting to make sure they got value for what they'd signed up for. And uh, we got through that with most people saying, fine, we'll, we'll do online things. We'll put it off into the future for when we can do trainings again. So that got us over the big like fear of having to almost go bankrupt in terms of the cash flow. And then um, we started developing these online courses, which you know have done very well. We uh, did a train the trainer course, uh, three days, where we actually were training people to deliver seminars, and we had to were able to break them up into small groups of uh, four or five people presenting, getting feedback from one of our trainers. Um, and we had 50 people in that group from seven countries. So we learned a lot about the technology and how to do that. We're planning a year-long program and a four-month program that we're starting uh, in July uh, that will be very, very exciting. So we're just finishing developing that, start marketing next week. So we've had to pivot. And um, the other thing that happened was that I was we were very fortunate to, you know, I pay attention to the news. So we applied for a, a payroll protection plan loan very quickly. And we got one. And so it basically paid our staff salaries through the end of July. But then it was like, what do we do in August? And at that time, we weren't having a lot of cash flow. We've got more now, but it's not enough to keep everyone up to speed. Uh, and we don't want to fire anybody because these people have been with me some 20, some 12 years. They're family and they have families and they depend on, on us uh, for their livelihood. And so I said, what can we do to help fill in the blanks to if we have that, because what I did a bunch of years ago during the Gulf War, the first Gulf War, is uh, we only had five employees at a time. And so I said, we don't want to fire anybody. Let's all take a 20% pay cut, including me and Patty Aubrey, who's the co-director of my company. And uh, we managed to get through it that way. 
And so I thought, well, we could do that again, but a lot of people depend on their salary. Is there a way we could implement, in, increment that? So we actually all joined a, a multi-level marketing company, which sells essential oils, which everyone in my company got involved with. And they're all uh, actually doing very well. We've, we're the fastest growing uh, team in that company's history. Uh, we get calls from corporate office going, what are you guys doing? You're amazing. You've gone from 30 people to 781 people in two months in your, in your organization. And uh, we're just coming from service because these essential oils help people. Um, I was just reading yesterday that 40% of Americans uh, describe themselves as clinically depressed right now. I and mean, there's a lot of research that would indicate that's true. And with the George Floyd thing going on and everyone realizing there's all the stress and what it means to grow up black. I mean, just growing up black in an urban environment almost guarantees you have PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. So the reality is we're finding a lot of these oils actually help de-stress, calm, get rid of PTSD, et cetera. So it's become part of our service into the world to be helping people. I was talking last night with one of my trainers who's African-American who lives in Minneapolis, uh, Rick Petrie. And he's a lawyer, teaches at a law school there as well. And he's been in, integrating all these success principles I teach into the law faculty, into the courses. And he's now suing the police department and as a you know as a black man in minneapolis and so we talked about that how can we help how can we help him and we started talking about these oils as a way to de-stress and uh, the adversarial nature of law and and the law school and all that so so that's something we've also done that i'm very excited about and learning about that and and, and our staff's doing well with that and i feel like we're making a huge difference in the lives of people was something I was totally unaware of five months ago. Didn't even mm. know this existed. Um, turns out that these oils have frequencies that literally are healing in the body. They build the immune system. They help you sleep better. I'm sleeping through the night now. My wife has uh, had restless leg syndrome. Puts a little lavender oil on her feet and she falls asleep. She doesn't wow. wake up for six hours. Um, friend of mine, his ex-wife never slept through the night. She took something called uh, Northern Idaho Spruce put that in her diffuser, she and her cat fell asleep within five minutes and she slept for five and a half hours. She hadn't done that in 20 years. So there's these magical things. So I'm very much into that, very much into looking at any institutional racism that might be in our own company. I mean, I have a woman who married a black person who's got a biracial daughter and thinking she'd done what she needed to do. She married a black guy, she, I'm not racist. But then she started to see some of the unconscious racism that exists in her, that exists in our company, that exists in the world, in Hawaii where she lives, which is very multicultural. And so that's a big thing that we're focusing on. And then I would say the last thing is, because I'm doing so much online, I'm sitting here a lot, I'm making sure I exercise every day, but it's challenging because I, I got up at 5.30 this morning to do a podcast in India, which was late night for them. Uh, but trying to do something in India during the day, they're all asleep. <laughs> and uh, and then spending time with my wife, because often I'm getting up early in the morning, I'm working till late at night. And so balancing that has been another thing that's uh, been challenging for me. But we've pivoted and we're making it work. Everybody's on board. Everybody realizes we, we, we're talking not about the new normal, but the new better. What can we learn from this? For example, for me, you know, I just did a workshop online 
it was a keynote speech really, for a major international company that had 7,000 people online listening to my talk. They were working from home. They wouldn't have been able to do that normally. I would have gone to Bermuda, would have taken a day to get there, would have done my talk probably for three or 400 top management people, and then I would have had a day of fly home. So three days out of my life for a fee hmm. that I got for two hours of speaking in front of my computer and it reached 7,000 people instead of 300 people. So I'm going like, that's better. You know, yeah, so yeah. that's not the old, I don't want to go back to the old normal. I do miss live seminars when people are laughing, when you can get people up doing shoulder massages and do experiential partnership exercises with them and so forth at the same level. And we'll get back to that, whether we get a vaccine or herd immunity or whatever happens, it might, you know, people say a month, a year, two years, three years. Uh, some people say it'll be nine years economists before we recover the economy. Uh, I don't know that that's true. I hope it's not. Could be. So we have to be ready for whatever it is. And I'll just end with this. I'm, I'm giving you a long answer. But I teach something called E plus R equals O, which says there are events in life. You have a response to that event. That equals the outcome. And often the event changes. You know, two plus two equals four. Hey, you're doing four. You're getting the middle class income. You're happy. Everything's working. And all of a sudden, COVID-19 comes along and goes zero. So zero plus two equals two, you know, half your income, half the fulfillment, you know, if you can pay your mortgage, you know, all the stuff that comes up, am I going to live? Am my parents going to live? And then we've got to change what we do to four. If we want four, if we want what we used to have, we got to do more. We have to step out of our comfort zone because zero plus two is always going to equal two. So the world's always changing. Someone said the only thing that's constant is change. And whether it was the Gulf War or 9-11, or you know, COVID-19, the recession in 2008, 2009, there's always things to deal with. And, and you know, being older, I lived through the Vietnam War, the Iraqi War, the Afghanistan War, different recessions. Um, you know, there are people alive who lived through World War II, people still alive who are in concentration camps, who are saying, COVID-19, no big deal. You know, yeah. uh, <laughs> try that one. So I think that for me, I remember when Napoleon Hill said, he said, every negative event has the seed in it of an equal or greater benefit. So knowing that and that being 75 like I am and seeing that show up many times in my life, looking back at what I thought was a terrible event and going, oh, thank God that happened. If I hadn't lost that job, I wouldn't have met W. Clement Stone. I wouldn't have learned about the mm -hmm. success principles. If I hadn't lost that job, I wouldn't have gone back to graduate school and worked on my doctorate. You know? So the reality is that while this is very difficult, we're getting time right now to think about our lives, to realize maybe wasting all that time in a commute and polluting the environment isn't the best way to live, spend more time at home with our families and working from home, as many people are doing. Many companies are now saying, hey, we're not gonna require everyone to come in every day, every now, this doesn't make sense. We're getting more efficiency and more productivity, people working from home. Someone like you got inspired to make a bigger difference, which you're doing daily, uh, several times a day sometimes. And um, I think also we're seeing that many of the things that we were doing, we're getting time to look at our own health. Were we exercising enough? Racism, have we been paying enough attention to that? Perfect storm, these two things coming together. We can't avoid each other. We're seeing that COVID-19 is not racist. So the results are racist, but our racist society, it's affecting poor people worse than rich people. But white people, Black people, brown people, red people, yellow people, we're all getting COVID-19. So it's, it doesn't give a shit about how much money you have, what your job is, where you live. And I think that's been interesting that we're all in this together. I think we all are starting to see we're all in this society together. And we're getting 
you know, when you think about all the people that aren't working, one out of four people that were employed or unemployed, when you think about all the kids that are not in school, all the college kids who graduated who thought they had jobs that don't, it's a perfect situation for people to take the time to be demonstrating, to be thinking about, to be looking at, to be reading and reflecting on their own racism and to be addressing these issues and not letting up. Because normally Monday would come and you'd have to go back to work, you'd have yeah. to go back to school and you kind of forget that you were at a, at a rally the weekend. But they've been happening day after day after day after day. And the Congress is noticing, the mayors are noticing, the governors are noticing, and people are not taking their foot off the gas pedal and saying, look, we have to deal with this. So anyway, I think there's a lot of good coming out of it. Yeah, I was actually meditating on that this morning and that came to me as, gosh, would this movement be as big if COVID hadn't happened and had so many people at home sheltering in place, having mm -hmm. time for them to have that reflection, having time for them to be more introspective, having time for them to pay a little bit more attention and, and freeing them of so much of the daily distractions we have when the alarm clock rolls off at Monday and we go, ugh, or whatever comes out of our mouth to start a week over again. And it seems like it's just been, and especially with so much of the constant stream of, it seems, frustration around COVID, what to believe, what not to believe. It seemed like it was a perfect emotional stew for something like this to happen, for people to really feel, really feel compelled to act and f feel compelled to, again, keep, the, keep your foot on the pedal. Mm -hmm. No, I think that's totally true. It's, it's true. You know, we, we've been social distancing really well. I haven't left the house, I mentioned, only two times. And we've had four friends come over and sit six feet apart outside. And we've talked. And there are people that are healthy and so forth, as we are. And um, it's all we talk about. Hmm. So it, it's, it's, it's something, I mean, we talk about other things too, you know your knee hurts when you're yeah. 75, you always have to have that conversation with people. But other than that, I mean, that was the conversation for two hours that night with two friends of ours. And then the other couple that came over, one of them was black, is black. And, um, and just talking about his experience and what that's like for him and, and being a professional living in Santa Barbara, which is a pretty white oriented community. Um, and so it's been intriguing and I think it's good. It's healthy. It's kind of like, you've got a underlying condition that you didn't know you had and then all of a sudden you had a cat scan and you discover you have cancer and you go oh god that's about all you can talk about you know because it's mm. uh, the big c and so we have a cancer in our society what's unfortunate someone once described in a blog they wrote that we are a heart attack culture with cancer which means that you know when you have a heart attack it really gets your attention and you change your diet you become a vegan like you know president Clinton did, you start exercising more, you know, you get better sleep because it really rocked your soul, you know, and the cancer kind of sneaks up on you slowly. You don't know it's coming. And so we, we, we don't notice the cancer until we have a heart attack. And then George Floyd's murder was a heart attack, you know, uh, and so it got our attention. And unfortunately, that's, people have been screaming and yelling for centuries, you know, ever yeah. since slavery ended, which it didn't really, but, you know, basically it, it, it ended in terms of its um, legalization. And so what happens is that we now are having to wake up to our x-ray and say, look, let's look at this and, and really go, what do we do? How do we change our, our, our diet, our exercise in terms of racism, as well as in terms of our immune system? I mean, we know that the, the main people that are dying from COVID one of, the, one of the things that's common to many, many, many of them is overweight and, and their immune system. When you're overweight, your immune system goes down. When you live in fear, when you live in stress, which many people do, your immune system goes down. 
So learning to meditate, learning to exercise, you know, getting back into your ideal weight. Um, you know, I've lost 15 pounds in February when I was in India. I went over there with that in mind at a clinic and also detoxing. And when I got back, uh, when I started on the essential oils, uh, I stopped it. My appetite changed. I've, I've lost another six pounds. That's awesome. So Congratulations. It, it's really good. And I, so I feel my immune system is really strong. You know, the supplements I take and the sleep I'm getting and all that. So um, I think all of us need to, to take a look at that. Jack, I want to bounce back to business real quick and then come back to here. Sure. I know I having been able to sit in the, the, the seminar room with you several times. I know those experiences are extremely meaningful for everyone in attendance. And I've talked with a lot of entrepreneurs, people in the coaching space and where, uh, where in-person events was a big part of their business. And one of the things that they've been really wrestling with is in migrating over into online spaces. How do you replicate the meaning of the classroom? How do you replicate that, that emotional connection that people have with the group bonds? And I'm wondering if you've found any key ahas insights you might share of what you and your team are doing to kind of replicate some of that magic that is in the classroom in a virtual environment. Well, one of the things we used to do in our live trainings was we'd open the doors, we'd have loud music on, great dance music. We'd have our whole assisting team, about 20 or 30 people lined up in kind of a cornucopia. We'd dance people in, high five them and all that. So what you're talking about is how do you engage them other than being listeners? And um, so we'll, we will start with like three minutes of dance music and say, get up in front of your computer, either I or someone else will dance to the music and mm. say, follow our moves. Or we might get some dancer and say, look, everyone imitate that person. Or maybe we have three or four dancers. And we used to do that in a training room, just bring someone up on stage and everyone would imitate their moves the best they could, you know? Yeah. Uh, and it would make it less, less awkward trying to be cool yourself, whatever. Um, so we do that. We have games we play. You know, there's, there's, there's certain games you can play with people uh, where you get them into pairs and, and, and have them do something silly. Um, you can mirror each other, you know, like you put your hands up and you got to follow my hands. We do that live. We can do it online. If I can divide you into groups of two on, on Zoom, which we can hit a button and all, all of a sudden you have a person. I can divide you into a pair or a group of three or four and give you each a minute to share what's your greatest challenge right now uh, since COVID-19 or what's your greatest economic challenge or what's your greatest relationship challenge. Uh, we can talk about your greatest success before you were 18. Things that begin to bond people uh, that way. Uh, one of the things that we've done is normally we would do an eye, con eye staring con not contest, but an exercise where you would just look in each other's eyes and you would kind of get in touch with the person's soul. And so we have everyone look at their screen, project as much love you as you can, and then start running groups of people across the screen. And yeah. the, the feeling of love comes forward, you know? So we can do that. We can have people chatting, you know, constantly, how many of you, whatever, and then they put it in the chat, you know. Uh, we do polls where, you know, here's five things. If you've read my book, you haven't read my book, you've taken a seminar, you haven't taken a seminar. But we can do things like, um, you know, how many of you on a scale of one to 10 feel like you're winning in the area of relationships? And then very quickly we can see what's going on and then we can respond to that in real time. Um, we can have people share. I can process somebody in front of the group, which I used to do, and everyone would, you know, what happens is we all have pretty much the same issues, but we don't, and we resist being vulnerable about it. But let's say you say, I want to work on this issue and I work it through with you and you have a breakthrough. Everyone else who has that same issue has a breakthrough along with you, you know, it's a change in belief, a change in letting go of, of some fear, whatever it might be. So we do that as well. Um, 
And as I said, go ahead. Oh, do you find people are, with them being able to do Zoom from their home, do you find that they seem to be willing to be a little bit more vulnerable or less vulnerable in the sharing process and engaging? More vulnerable. More vulnerable. Because I, when you break them into a small group, two or three people, it's quiet in that group. One person talks at a time. There isn't all that noise and distraction of two or 300 people around you. Mm -hmm. uh, they know that no one's going to overhear them other than the two people they're talking to. Uh, when we were doing presentations with feedback for our train the trainer program online, which we have, um, we would have four people in a group. We'd have one of our senior trainers in there, you know, giving feedback. And um, people said they felt safer because it was just three people. Whereas normally we'd be in groups of 12 and they'd be giving feedback. And um, so uh, they liked it better. And the other thing we're finding is that people, we're getting more people enrolling in our courses because they don't have to fly from India or fly from Florida or fly from Germany. No visas required. Some countries you can't get visas anyway right now hmm. you know, because of the coronavirus. Um, and it's cheaper. You know, they don't have to pay for a hotel room and food and it's in the comfort of their own home. And uh, so it's worked out very well. Jack, I want to ch switch back over to the, to the race and some of the social issues that we were talking about. You mentioned. Sure. I, so I think my observation is, is and I'll speak as a, a white guy, is I've wanted to do something to help, something meaningful to contribute to the conversation, to what's going on. And the fear that I resisted for a long time was this fear of in the age of trial by Twitter, as a white guy I could say the wrong thing, that then it's a 10-second soundbite that runs on Twitter. And I go to bed with thinking I did something really good. And I wake up in the morning and I'm public enemy number one, <laughs> you right. know, thinking right. of myself as that important, right? right. And, and so I wrestled with what it was. And what really kind of helped me move was that Martin Luther King Jr. quote about the the white moderate, I'm paraphrasing Dr. King, but the white moderate that is unwilling to act, who is sympathetic to the cause, but doesn't speak up. And that's a long way of asking, do you, do you ever wrestle with, you know, having gone through all the experiences you had, and I know we were talking beforehand about having marched with Dr. King in the civil rights time, writing the books, doing the talks, do you still ever have that point of, of questioning yourself if you should act with something like this? And if you do, how do you reconcile with yourself? I don't have the question of should I act. I have the question of how I should act, when I should act. Mm -hmm. And it took me about four or five days to write something for Facebook about the, the George Floyd situation and the, the racism. I mean, George was just the, the powder keg fuse that went off. Um, so it's not the George Floyd situation, it's the racism in America that's there. And, but I wanted to say something that was meaningful. I wanted to say something that was helpful. I wanted to say something that acknowledges all the people. Um, and I wanted to say something that would not be something that would get kicked back. Um, can I live with that? Yes. Uh, in the book, uh, White Fragility, uh, the author talks about the importance of being willing to take the risk that the engagement is what's important. And if you take the risk, you're gonna learn from it, you know? And the learning is what's really important, the willingness to engage, to be vulnerable. It's the people who are so afraid to say something wrong, so afraid of being accused of being a racist, whatever. And you know, there's some people who've made some statements that I think were pretty good, and they got a lot of kickback. And some of it from past behavior, well, if that's so, why did you do that? You know, uh, NFL, you know, director, uh, commissioner, and so forth, uh, with the, Kaepernick thing and the knee on the ground with the you know 
Pledge of Allegiance, the American flag and all that uh, national anthem. But the point being, I think you have to take the risk to say, here's what I think and feel and be willing to have it come back at you. Now, the problem online is that it's so easy to just say, you effing racist, you know, uh, <laughs> and, and often it's anonymous and it's just people's anger. And so if you can remember that, it's more about them than it is about you. It's their anger, their hurt. And I think what Mandela learned in Africa when they did the reparations and the, um, I forget the exact term, uh, when they were trying to end apartheid and he was having people come together in the groups and they would talk about white and black would talk about their experiences and whites needed to learn to listen to what black people had experienced. And was it comfortable? No. Was it wanting to defend yourself? Yes. Was it the right thing to do in the beginning? No, just listen. And then you can talk about your experience as a white person and the fears you had. And, and we're, all, we're, all, we're all suffering from this. You know, the fear of saying the wrong thing, the fear of uh, going to a neighborhood that you don't think is safe because you've been racially convinced it's not. And there are neighborhoods that aren't safe for anybody, black or white, you know what I mean? So you have to be, you have to be realistic as well as visionary. And I think that, that finding that balance is challenging uh, for me. So it took five days. I wrote about four and a half pages. It was really more of a, of a paper than it was a Facebook post. And I had to edit it down. And I said, more to come, because I felt like you know I hadn't said enough yet. And I'm still looking at what's my next thing I'm going to post out there. Um, but I do think it's, it's incumbent upon all of us to to take a stand because to not say anything is to be silently complicit like the three officers who didn't stop the officer who you know ultimately killed Mr. Floyd. Jack with the events of so at the time of this recording it's early June of 2020 and we've many of us have had lives very much changed the last several months with COVID and shelter in place and time and I know you were saying earlier about how you used to have to go, you did a keynote and it was two hours versus having to do the flight there the, the day of the thing and then coming back. So you effectively had three days that exchanged two hours for three days or maybe three days for two hours. I'm wondering, has your relationship to how you relate with and experience time altered at all now? Because I take it as you're someone who's very busy, you have a demanding schedule and you're almost gaining in a way, time back with experiences like that. Have you found, but then you're at home, which I know a lot of people have struggled with that piece of being at home, being not able to have the outside stuff that they normally turn to, to kind of dictate the course of your life. Have you found that your relationship with time has, has changed at all? And how are you, if so, how are you experiencing it differently now? I think, well, I'm, I'm, I like being home. I, 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 I love speaking live and I love running trainings. I don't like the air travel. I don't like, you know, the sleeping in hotels and all of that. Um, so th there's been a benefit of that. I sleep in my own bed. I'm getting more sleep than I usually do. I'm not getting up at five to catch a six o'clock plane out of Santa Barbara to connect with something out of Denver to the East Coast. And, um, but what's true for me is that, and my wife would, would definitely underline this with a big yes, uh, which is I'm, I'm probably working more, not less. Uh, in that I get at least five requests a day to do what I'm doing with you uh, because I am a celebrity and people, I guess, care what I have to say. And I've said yes to, I would say, you know, 80% of the invitations I get. Some of them just the times don't work and I'm, I'm busy already or I don't feel that it's the right venue. But generally, 
So I'm up in the morning. I'm not having breakfast with my wife. I'm out here doing this. Um, sometimes the podcast I do is at five or six o'clock. So we're eating dinner late. Uh, I usually have to do preparation. If there's questions in advance, I'd like to know what they are so I can think about them a little bit. Uh, often I'm using slides in my presentation. So I have to make sure, like I did a, one for India this morning. So all my slides that said, you know, earn a hundred thousand a year, had to be earned, you know, 7 million rupees a year or whatever. And um, so I spent a lot of time customizing those, which takes time to do. And I'm doing more of that than when I was doing paid speaking. And um, so my days are very full. And then having started this, this network marketing thing, that's a new division of our company, that takes a lot of time managing all that and doing, I'm doing opportunity calls where people can come and find out about the oils and mm. the business opportunity, this work from home potential that they have. And so that's another new thing in my agenda. Um, and then when, when George Floyd took the news, my staff is all going, we have to do something. So I've been on like probably five, two hour staff meetings where we're deciding, what do we do? Do we give away free trainings to African-Americans or people teaching African-Americans? Um, one of the people I mentioned early on is a, a law professor in Minneapolis and uh, talking about how, what can we do for his law school? How can we support his petition? How can we support him in his legal actions? Um, you know, I, I signed a petition, I put it out on Facebook. So I'm doing a lot more of that just to be socially relevant and make a difference and, and not be you know, inactive in that area. So there's a lot of demands on my time. And I would say time is going by faster than it usually does. Because when you do a one hour thing like we're doing for however long we do it, 45 minutes or so, that time is over like that, you know, and you do five or six of those, your whole day's gone, you know, and a lot of the things like answering emails and filing things and putting things away and, you know, opening my mail and paying my bills and that almost, which I would do like at five or six o'clock at night, that's not getting done till the weekend and 10 in the morning, you know, on Saturday. And so yeah. I, I have less time with my wife, just less time in general for the average stuff of life. Although we did start a 500 piece puzzle last night, worked on it for half an hour. So that was good. That's good. How many pieces did you get done in five hour in a half an hour? We just took it out of the box and found all the edge pieces. We haven't put them <laughs> together yet. <laughs> you know, Jack, I know I want to be respectful of your time. So let's ask one more question. Uh, you know, having had the experiences you've had, the success you had, there's two parts to this. If you could go back in to your life and to give a piece of advice to one, your younger self, but then a, a personal piece of advice to your younger self, and then a professional piece of advice to the younger professional version of yourself that would be something that you wish you knew, you understood, you had at that time, what would that be? On the personal side, I would have advised myself to have more self-confidence and not be so shy. I was really shy around women for a long part of my life. If I wasn't in a class with them or their lab partner in college, I would never ask them for a date. It was just too, mm. too scary to go up to a stranger and say, I'm attracted to you. Would you like to go out, have dinner, go to a dance? I mean, just, it just didn't happen. And so um, that was a waste of time. I actually found out that the girl I had a crush on all through high school never asked out had a crush on me. <laughs> that was one of the most painful moments. I learned that when I was in college, someone told me who knew her and I was, oh man, you gotta be kidding me. And I think just learning to ask, I was so afraid to ask for anything, you know, mm -hmm. ask for help, ask for support, ask for guidance, ask for money, ask for, so I think I missed out on a lot probably up until I was about 
29 years old in, in that department, you know. Um, so that would be the first thing. Just, I teach now, ask, 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 ask. Don't be afraid of a no, because there's a lot of no's, but you'll get a yes. You know, just ask more yeah. people, ask more often. I think on the professional side, I would say I wish someone had told me to write sooner, you know, because once you've written a book, your ideas are there. The, the process of writing it forces you to clarify your thinking because it's one thing to say something, you can always back off on it. You can always come around it. And, but when you write it down on paper, it's there. And mm -hmm. so you have to live with what you've written. So it forces you to think more clearly if you're contradicting yourself or you're not clear or people have questions. And, um, you know, the, I think Chicken Soup for the Soul was so successful because we got a lot of feedback on every story. We had a panel of readers, sometimes 40 readers who would read all the stories, just friends and volunteers, people who wanted this to participate, who would give us, a, a, on a scale of one to 10, how would you rate the story? And anything less than a nine average from 40 people, we wouldn't publish. And that's why the books were so successful. Or we'd edit it until it became a nine, you know, maybe there's mm. something missing it needed. And um, so feedback, really important. But I think I didn't write until I was much older and I could have been much more successful because I had a lot to say. I was always a voracious learner. Went, took a lot of seminars, went to a lot of workshops, read a lot of books. Now I watch TED Talks and YouTube videos and there's so much more I'd love to get to. I've got a list of like 80 TED Talks I've heard about that I want to watch. You know, we only do so much a day. Um, but those would be the two major things I would say. And, and I would also say, I would have told myself, always come from service. I think when I was younger, I was just trying to build a career and build my reputation mm. and all that. I've always been a loving person and a humble person. That hasn't changed much. But I think there was too much focus on me and my company instead of just like what I've lived the last, I say, 30 years is just how can I be of more service to more people? That's, that's kind of my guiding question in life. Everyone, wow, do you want to rewatch, re-listen, take some notes, and most importantly, put into action. Uh, Jack gave us so much guidance and wisdom here from the idea of what happens when the world turns upside down to finding a new way to generate income, not for just him, but his staff, and creating a new business that not only is, is profitable, but, but is extremely helpful and supportive of people using it and finding these new ways to help with PTSD and depression and, and restless leg syndrome. Who wouldn't want their spouse and significant other have a better night's <laughs> sleep? Everybody wins with that one, right? There you go. <laughs> to really what do you do when you feel called to do something, to answering that call, to, to speaking out. And I love the distinction of not should I, but how should I? I I've wrestled with that and I think many of us have, and it's, it's that understanding that you know you should and just what exactly does that look like? And maybe if we can shift our focus to that versus wrestling with the if, if not, if this and that, it would give us a lot more clarity in how we act. I love the two pieces of advice about going back and asking, 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 gosh, haven't we all found out we had that one person who we had the crush on? And then it only turns out that if only we would have, I, I have some stories I could tell about that for sure. And, <laughs> and then on, to become from more of a place of service, you know, as an entrepreneur, I've wrestled with that. And I appreciate hearing that so much because especially in this digital day and age where we're bombarded daily with countless ads promising us that if you sign up for this program, you'll earn seven figures in 38 hours. And it gives you the gimmicks in the playbook, uh, which is really just a tried and way of laying into someone and turning up the fear buttons. But to really just come from a place of service, I 
I can't echo that enough because I found that my life has been far more enriching and fulfilling with that in mind. I also love the notion of time and not going back to what was, but evolving to what can be now and looking at how we relate to time differently and that, you know, where you might have had to take three days to accomplish in two hours. Well, now you can just take the two hours and accomplish what you used to take three days to do. Perhaps there's other opportunities out there for you and your business, your health, your relationship, making your health a priority, right? At this time that we're all thinking of COVID and what's to come, doing those things to boost your immune system where it's losing a total of 21 pounds or so, or just yeah. being more fit and active. There's always an opportunity for us to improve ourselves. And I think something that I love and appreciate about Jack is he seems to constantly working, working on that and definitely is an example of what he teaches. Jack, thank you so very much for being here. This has been such a, a blessing. Thank you. Might I just uh, tell people my website if they oh, want yeah, to find please. out more about my work? Yeah, please. If you want to, I've, I wrote a book called The Success Principles, if you'd like to read that, and uh, you can go to Amazon.com, of course, but I have a website called jackcanfield.com. Very simple. And if you'd like to know more about the oils, you can send an email to oils at jackcanfield.com, and we'll make sure you get on one of the calls we do to let you know about it. But uh, thanks for the opportunity to share what little bit of wisdom we had time for here today. And Jesse, I just want to acknowledge you for stepping up and stepping out and creating such value in the world. Uh, you've done it magnificently and quickly and powerfully. And so I just want everyone to acknowledge you as much as you acknowledge me. Thanks, Jack. And I'll be sure to have all your links and everything on the website and going out with all the, whenever everything just gets pushed out into the world. Okay, thank you. All right, everyone. We'll see you next time on another edition of A Handful of Hope. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening. If you're finding value in these conversations, please rate and review on Apple, Google, Stitcher, or wherever your favorite place is to listen to